Let me request you to turn to your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8. That's the passage we'll be considering this evening, and I trust that the Lord will bless us from His Word. I'm waiting for us to settle down so that we can read God's Word. All right, and I read. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Metheg Amma out of the hand of the Philistines, and he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to put to death, and, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David uh, struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tributes. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Adadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. And Hadadezer had often been at war with Toi. And Jor Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. This also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he had de dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Adadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Saul. Then he put garrisons in Edom throughout all Edom. He put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitu, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Zariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Kerathites, and the Pelathites and David's sons were priests. Before we hear God's word, let's go before him and uh, ask for help. Uh. Oh Lord, we come before you this afternoon. We thank you that you have given us this time to hear your word. And oh Lord, we plead with you that you would give us a hunger for your word that you would give us a thirst from your word, for your word. And then, O oh Lord, we pray and plead that you would feed us and that you would quench our thirst as your word goes forth. We pray that your word would go forth with power and with authority and that your Holy Spirit would back the preaching of your word so that we would all be blessed. As we have sung, O oh, come, 
thou fountain of every blessing. We pray that each and every one of us would be blessed this evening. That the lost would be saved. That the weak would be strengthened. And that the careless would be warned and called to repent us. Oh Lord, grant us this. Enable me, oh Lord, to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and even simply, oh Lord, so that your people would understand. And we pray that at the end of this, Christ and Christ alone would be exalted. So be with us, Lord, for we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, normally in Kenya, before um, a construction happens, and especially when, uh, let's say it's a government construction, maybe they're building a road or something like that, we tend not to believe it until we see a contractor on site, isn't it? Until we see the contractor, you know, the men and the women on site doing the actual work, we don't believe it. And even the, your local MP, if he wants to assure you that work is happening or that work has started to build a road or a bridge, he would say, the contractor is on site, isn't it? And then from there we would know, finally, the road is being fixed or the bridge is being repaired. Well, in this passage, I want us to see that God is building his kingdom. And as he builds his kingdom, he begins by getting the right man for the job. He begins by getting the man on the ground, if we can put it that way. David is now king of Israel. And with David on the throne, we see that now God brings out his works of building up his kingdom. And as we look at this passage and we see how God built his kingdom through David, I want us to see that God is building his kingdom today through the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. That the work of God has never stalled. It has never stopped. Actually, the work of God, now that Christ has come, is in full force. God is building up his kingdom because it's only God who will build his kingdom. No man will help him. He uses men, but God is the one who is doing it. And as we see this passage, I want us to see three things about how God is building up his kingdom. Now, I just want to say this before we begin to look at the first point. And that is that in the previous chapter, we ended on a high note in chapter 7. We saw God promising to establish the house of David. David had cried to God and asked God, God, I want to build your house. And God says, no, you will not build my house. I will build your house. And by building your house, I will build my kingdom. And one of the things we will also need to see is how God is so focused on building his kingdom. God is not here to build our own little kingdoms as men, because our kingdoms will rise and fall. All kingdoms will rise and fall. That's the history of humanity. Even the most powerful of kingdoms will rise and fall. No, but the kingdom of God will continue on. God promises to build up the house of David and to build up his kingdom. And now in this chapter, we have a record. We have a summary of how God goes on to build up his kingdom. Now, these events, as we look at these chapters, I want to say that they are not recorded chronologically. It doesn't mean that they happened in the exact order that they are listed. And many times in the Bible, things are not recorded chronologically. 
because they want more to give information and they want to group certain truths together rather than simply give you a chronological order of how things happen. And so we see that in God, God building up his kingdom through David, the man after his own heart, we see that the first thing that God does is that the enemies of the kingdom are subdued. Now this chapter begins with, or it's, it covers a lot of the victories of David and the victories that he has over the enemies of Israel. And you might wonder, why is it that the writer of Samuel, 2 Samuel, goes on to tell us about victory and this victory and that victory? Well, they have a purpose. And they are there to show us that one of the aspects of building up his kingdom that Yahweh fulfills is subduing the enemies of Israel. Now again, these wars are not arranged in chronological order, but they are organized again in groups so that we may appreciate the accomplishments of David. We are told that David goes to war against the Philistines in verse 1. And he defeats them. And then we are told about how he subdued the Moabites and he makes them to be a vassal of Israel. And we are told how he divides this nation into three parts. He destroys one and then he spares a, a, a third and then puts uh, a third to slavery. We are told how he conquers the Syrians who had two distinct kingdoms, one headed in Damascus and one from Zobah. Now, why is this all there? These battles and these victories are recorded. Not to show us that David was a hero, because sometimes people read this passage and they say, look at how much of a hero David was. Look at how victorious David was. And to prove to you that this passage is not about David, what are we told? And who brought this victory to David? It's who? It's the, the Lord. Lest you forget. Lest you read this chapter and you think, wow, David was a great military tactician. Oh, great, David had a great army. Oh, no. We are told, lest we forget, that it is the Lord. Verse 14, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. David defeated the most powerful of kingdoms and the weakest of kingdoms because God was with him. Yahweh was, was with him. Yahweh was accomplishing his purposes. When we look and when we read about these battles, please, again, don't just look at them as simply political wars, because that's another error that we have, that people look at the battles in the, in the scriptures as political wars. And political wars are wars that are waged for the ends, for the selfish ends of men. And you know them, isn't it? Influence, control. You know, men go to war with other men. Nations go to war with other nations. Why? We want resources or we want to destroy someone who is a threat to us. 
or we want to show how superior and powerful we are over this nation or these people. That's not the case with the wars of God's people in the Bible. These were not political wars. These were wars where God was establishing his people because remember that Israel then were God's covenant people. There was no other nation in which God had made a covenant with. It was only the people of Israel. And therefore the wars of David here are part of God's purpose in protecting, in preserving his people Israel. It must be remembered that one of the blessings that a righteous king has over the people of Israel is that he would subdue or he will protect the people of Israel from their enemies. For example, we see in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 16, this is what God says or Samuel says about the king. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because the cry has come to me. So God was protecting his people, Israel. He was ensuring that those who are called by his name are protected. They are secure. They are at peace. And why are they protected? Why are they secure? Why are they at peace? The end is that they may do what? They may serve Yahweh. And we need to learn that, by the way, dear brethren, that the reason why God protects his people, the reason why God preserves his people, is so, it's also that we may live a good life, a nice life here on earth. Why are we told to pray for peace in the nations where we are? Is it so that we may buy and sell? Is it so that we may invest? Why are we told to pray for peace? We pray for peace so that what may happen? We may do what? Spread the gospel, isn't it? It has that end to glorify God. It was so that Israel may be at peace. It's so that they may be able to go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices to God without being worried about the Philistines raiding them. And now God accomplishes this by not just destroying the Philistines, it goes all the way God was also using these wars to bring his purposes into fulfillment. Where, for example, we see that Edom is destroyed to fulfill God's words to Esau and the words of Balaam to the Edomites. When God said that the older shall serve the younger. We are here now told that the Edomites were servants to the, to the people of Israel. It's fulfillment. Again, this is not simply war where territory is being acquired, where people are being subjugated as an end. No, God is fulfilling. Even the promises that he spoke to Isaac, even what he spoke or the word that he gave to Balaam to speak to the kings of the Edomites. But this passage looks forward to the victories of the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. It looks forward to the great son of David, who will conquer nations and who will bring them under subjection to God. And unlike David, who shed blood, Christ will conquer nation, nations, not by spilling their blood. How will Christ conquer nations? He will now do what? He will now spill his, his own blood. And that's the wonderful thing about Christ. 
that while we see that in this covenant it was the blood of the nations that have to be shed for them to be subdued for prophecy to be fulfilled oh what a wonderful and blessed reality that in Christ the great son of David that he now shed his own blood he is the one who has his blood spilled he is the one who has to die so that the people of the nations both the Jew and Gentile can now be brought and be made to be the people of God what a wonderful show of God's love this is how he has conquered us saints isn't it he has conquered us by his love we have not been conquered by a sword we know for example of religions like islam and we know that one of the ways that islam has spread is through what through the sword isn't it it is by shedding other people's blood it is by threatenings oh no not christianity for christianity we point to the lamb who was slain we point to the lamb who shed his blood so that sinners may be forgiven so that sinners may be saved come to this messiah those who are not in christ if you're seated in this room if you do not know this christ if you're still in your sins The Bible tells us that the wrath of God is upon all humanity. Do not wait for the sword of God's justice to be poured upon you in hell. Oh no. Come to Christ. Come to him who shed his blood so that sin sinners may be forgiven so that they may be made the people of God so that they may be transferred as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 so that sinners may be transferred from the kingdom of darkness from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Christ well that's the first thing that we see about how god is now building up his kingdom so again look at look at second uh, samuel chapter 8 as that it's a summary it's a summary of what uh, the, the reign of david in a sense to show how god used him to build up his kingdom but then the second thing that we see that happens is that god not only builds his kingdom by subduing his enemies or the enemies of his people but by uh, we see that the wealth of the kingdom is increased and we see this from in many places verse 7 and david took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Adadeze and brought them to Jerusalem we see that he takes chariots from the Syrians we see that he uh, takes bronze silver and gold from the nations and he brings all of that to Jerusalem to Israel now the scripture is filled with many instances where those whom god has called where god's covenant people and those who serve him are given the material things of this world they are enriched they are made to have to possess some of the silver and gold in this world not all of it but some of it and why does this happen they are not enriched so that they may lift themselves and their names but so that they may glorify god whenever you see in the bible god blessing people with wealth it is not simply for their good so that they may have a name for themselves so that they may just enjoy the comforts of life in their own little corner 
of life. No, no. That is the world. That's what the world preaches and teaches, isn't it? You get all you can. And then can all you get. And then enjoy it in your own little corner of life. Well, the kingdom of God is the opposite. You get all you can so that you may do what? You may give it out. So that you may share with others. This happens, for example, with Abraham. Who is blessed in his wars against the kings in Genesis. When he conquers them, we are told that the first thing he does is when he gains silver and gold, what does he do? Does he go and build himself a new house? Does he go and add himself new horses and more sheep? Is that what we see Dave, uh, Abraham doing? What does he do? He gives a tithe to who? Melchizedek. The high priest of God. We also see this when Israel is redeemed from Egypt. When God defeats the gods of Egypt. When God defeats the gods of Egypt through the ten plagues. We are told that the people of Israel leave Egypt with great wealth. With great gold. Uh, with much gold and silver. And what was that gold and silver for? It was to do what? To build the, the tabernacle, isn't it? Because when they get now to the other side of the Red Sea, God now calls on the people and he tells them, give willingly to the building of the tabernacle. He actually shows Israel that you will not see you will not know me in a deep way unless you first give your silver, your gold for the building of the tabernacle. And we now see in these wars that God enriches Israel. And it is now, we shall see later, for the purpose of building the temple. All this wealth is not so that David may have more. Read this passage again. We don't see David, we don't see where we are told that David now took that gold and that silver and he became wealthy. What are we told? This also, David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and the gold. That he had dedicated from all the nations he subdued. David was not doing this to enrich himself. We see enemies. In this chapter we see the enemies of God's people being subdued. But their wealth also, also being plundered and given out. To Jerusalem or given to Jerusalem. And we also see the same thing with tributes being paid. We see that in the victorious dispossession of the enemies of Israel, all this wealth is then given to the service of God. And we are told what David does to it. He dedicates it to the Lord. David and all Israel acknowledge that they and their possessions belong to God. And thus, anything that they get must be given back to God. The Lord expected the people of Israel to do this. He actually even put it in the law. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 17 and 18. This is what God tells them. And it's actually a warning. It's not just a command. It's a command with a warning. To show how we need to handle our possessions even today. Even today, this part of the law applies to us. Deuteronomy 8 verse 17 and 18. Beware, lest you say in your heart, 
my power and my might of hand has gotten me this wealth. So there is a warning. Never, ever, ever get to a point in your life where you get money, you get power, you get influence, you get properties, and you start thinking, look at me. Look at how hardworking I am. Look at how favored I am. Oh, look at how great I am. Beware. Watch out. Be careful, dear brethren. You shall remember the Lord your God. Why? For it is He who gives you power to get wealth. And listen, why he, does He do it? That He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. So, as the Lord blesses us, and He does bless us with the material things of this world, let us not become proud. Watch out. Lest you start thinking that you are better than the person who is doing badly next to you. Or lest you start thinking that you had something to do with that. No, it is God who sovereignly gave it to you. Well, wait a minute, pastor, but I am the one who worked hard. Where did you get that energy? Where did you get that health so that you may be able to work hard and be able to earn? Well, it's because I passed in my exams or because I knew the right time to invest in this stock and in that stock. Well, wait a minute. Are you, are you even able to breathe? without God? Are you even able to tie your shoes without God? Watch out. Now this doesn't mean that God needs man or he needs what we have to give to him. Don't misunderstand this passage to mean that the Lord will build his kingdom with or without your silver and your gold. What God is actually doing is inviting us. He's inviting us from the hand that he gives us from his own hand. And then he wants us to give back to his own hand. You're just taking from his hand like a little child. You're taking from his hand and you're giving back to his hand. You have not added anything to him. God doesn't need anything. Doesn't he own cattle on a thousand hills? You know, sometimes we think that God is so desperate for our silver and our gold. No. Rather, God, as a merciful, as a gracious father, is inviting us to participate in him building up his kingdom. And that's why then we, even as a church, we give of the material blessings that he has given to us. And we do not give because we have been coerced. Or you shouldn't give because you have been coerced. But you give because you know I'm playing a role in building up the kingdom of God. When I give, I am building up the kingdom of God. That should be our mindset. We are giving back so that this kingdom that will last forever may be built up. I'm playing just my little small role in a much wider and bigger reality. But then we must understand again that we cannot give to God. Because God is the one who has given us everything. And we are told that actually God gave us the best of gifts that God gave his only son. God gave the greatest treasure to us in Christ. 
while we offer him gold and silver which will pass away, which will fade away, which will disappear. Oh, but God gave to us something much more precious than we could ever give back to him. He gave us the gift of gifts, the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear brethren, that should be our attitude that because God has given us this immense, great blessing, how can we keep back from him this little uh, uh, stones and sticks that he has given to us? Can we not give them to him? Can we not share with others? Can we not give them for the building of his kingdom? To the unbeliever. Now I know some would say, well, pastor, I give. I like the rich young ruler who would say, uh, who came to Christ and uh, wanted to serve Christ. Christ told him, you know, Go, sell everything, come and follow me. And he didn't do it. He didn't listen. Why? He held on to the treasures of this world, forgetting the treasure of treasures. If you're seated here and you do not know Christ and you're hanging on on the treasures of this world, if you're working hard and it's okay to work hard, work hard, but listen. All the treasures this world will ever offer you will come to an end one day. When you breathe your last, when that heart of yours stops, and you find yourself before the presence of God, that holy judge, that frightful day, do you think your silver and your gold will buy your way out of judgment? Receive him now. Clutch on to him by faith. Hold on to this great treasure, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are told when you do that, you will have eternal life. You will have an, a relationship with God where God will be your father and you will be his son and his Holy Spirit will indwell you and you will live a life that honors and pleases him. Oh, come to him. Oh, sinner, don't continue on in your life of sin. Don't continue on in your life of self-righteousness, thinking you can give anything to God. You can't give anything to him unless you belong to him. But then thirdly, and as I conclude, so God builds up his kingdom he destroys or he subdues the enemies of his people. We see that there is a wealth coming to um, his people. But then thirdly, I want us to see that Israel doesn't simply, or, or that God doesn't simply build up his king, kingdom by uh, subduing the enemies and protecting them from harm. Or, or increasing their wealth so that they may be able now to serve God and build the, 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 the temple. No. We see that they are given something even more important. Something even more important is granted to Israel. A statement that we don't see, we don't see this before. And I don't think we even see this again. You will notice that the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all of them talk about justice and equity being administered. It's not there in Israel. This is something that God blesses Israel during the reign of David. Does Israel fight wars and win after David? It does. Does Israel increase in wealth? Actually, we see that in Solomon, Israel becomes even wealthier, isn't it? But this is a statement that 
we need to focus on that God grants righteousness to reign over the kingdom. That righteousness would reign over this land. That righteousness would reign over the people of God. That's the blessing of blessings. We see that David is used of God to not only protect the people from the enemies, to increase their wealth, but now he helps them in terms of justice, in terms of the relationship between the people of God. There was justice and equity amongst the people of God. And this is done by a king who is victorious because oftentimes, for those who love history like me, you, you know that oftentimes in history, kings who conquer kingdoms and peoples and who plunder uh, the wealth of their enemies often come back with pride and entitlement. And they often turn into what? Tyrants, isn't it? Look at all the history. Whenever you have a king who is victorious, a king who brings wealth to his people, he normally comes back with pride and entitlement. And he looks at his people and says, now, because I have made you rich, I have given you a great name. You must now do what? Listen to me. I'm the big man. They turn into tyrants who rule by their whims and make themselves and their officials gods who must be worshipped by the people. But this is not the case with David, a man after God's own heart. We see that in spite of the victories that David ensures that there is justice. That he is a king who ensures that the law of God is obeyed. In spite of the sins and the failures of David, the Lord allows that David's rule is defined by this statement. David administered justice and equity, not to some of the people, not to some of the people who helped him, not to those who are close to him, not even to those whom he liked, to all his people. And by the way, just read, if you read, if you continue reading through 2 Samuel, and, and Lord willing, next time we will look at how um, David even shows kindness to Mephibosheth. He even gives justice to those people who don't deserve his justice. He, 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 they don't deserve his kindness, and he's kind to them. Now again, David is not perfect. But this is how God chooses to define his reign. This truth is very significant as it shows the heart of God's will for the king. God's will for the king is not to win battles and to gain wealth. The Lord desires justice and fairness as his law demands. I had already mentioned this, but observe, and again, just if, if in your own study of the major prophets, you will realize that one of the big themes, not just of the major prophets, but also the minor prophets, one of the big themes is justice. They rebuke the leaders of Israel 
you are not being just. You are not ruling the people as you ought to rule them. You are domineering these people. You uh, are using these people to en uh, enrich yourself. You are using these people so that your name may be great. That's what the prophets keep on complaining about. Let me read just some of them. Micah 6 and verse 8. Pastor Murungi is going through, uh, is it Micah? He went through Micah. Yes. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. Listen to this. And what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you? To do? To do justice. And to love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. Look at that. God was telling the kings at that time, this is what I want for my people. But then the kings thought, well, if we make Israel wealthy, if we make Israel have a great name, we're doing our duty. If, if we make a, a treaty with Assyria and we make a treaty with the, the Egyptians, with Egypt, and God says, no, I want justice. I want you to love kindness. I want you to walk humbly with your God. Please go and look for those sermons on Micah. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 15. Look at what God says. When you spread out your hands, that is, when you come to me in worship and you spread out your hands, what will I do? I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's call. I, let me just read one more verse. I have many, but let me just read one more verse. Isaiah 58 and verse 6. Is not this the first that I choose? To lose the bonds of, the, of, uh, to lose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the, uh, of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring homeless, uh, to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and to hide yourself from, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? We are told here that equity. Justice governs the land. And we see this even um, in what we are told about his officials. Now, some of them were not the best of men. For example, Joab. But David ensured that even in the wickedness of Joab, that he would not allow Joab to do what he wanted. Ensuring that there was justice. The priests who were there, he would facilitate the priests. You remember that under Saul, the priests were, were frightened. They were under fear. Actually, uh, is it the high priest who is killed by, by Saul? They were living under fear. The priests couldn't do their work. They couldn't do their function while they were afraid of Saul. But what do we see with David? He now allows the priests to do their duty. They flourish. They grow. It's justice. And we even told that his sons were priests. Now this doesn't, I've read a number of commentators and they would agree that this doesn't mean that they were serving in the temple, but rather it means that they were servants. 
that even his own sons, you know, whenever a man becomes big, his sons now become big and they rule over everyone. No, 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 not with David. He brings them up in a way. He encourages them to live in a way that they help him in administering the people. Now, it doesn't mean, again, they are perfect. We shall see that there are issues with his family, with Absalom, which is sad. But then here we are told that David's sons were priests. There was justice in his home. There was justice in his kingdom. There was justice in the nation of God. But as I have said, that David himself fails to be a complete just man, isn't it? He's not perfect. He fails. We are told of him having a man killed so that he may take his wife. A sad thing to be said about a just king. And for those who are reading this passage and they're saying, how can David be just? And he did this. Well, I hear you. The Bible hears you. And that is why there is need for a righteous king. That is why, in spite of David being a man after God's own heart, there is need for a king. And not just a king, not just a king who administers justice, but a king who is holy, who is just, who is perfect. We need a king like that. And that is why the great son of David, the great king, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the solution to our problems. For those who are looking at the world around us and you're saying that there is so much injustice in the world that we live in. I mean, look at the injustice in this country. Look at the wickedness in this country. And this bothers us. This should bother us. It shouldn't be that we are okay with the injustice that we see in this country. It should bother us. But the solution, dear brethren, is not simply a better president. The solution isn't simply a better constitution. Isn't simply better laws, better policemen, better this, better that. The solution is the great king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Isaiah 9, 6 to 7 says, because Isaiah has a lot of that. Isaiah and Jeremiah have a lot in terms of justice, crying out for justice, crying out for justice. And what's the answer given? Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. For us, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name? shall be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, um, uh, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So even though Isaiah was looking at the injustice in Israel, he knew that the solution is coming. Christ is coming. God has not left us to ourselves. David administered justice amongst his people. 
but he wasn't perfect at it. But here comes a king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that he, first of all, brings justice. In that he, he takes away the judgment of God from those who are his. He takes on, takes upon himself the righteous judgment of God for his people on the cross. He is the propitiation for our sins on that cross. And therefore, the justice of God, because God's law demanded justice. God's law demanded justice from you and I who are lawbreakers, isn't it? God can't simply say, well, I forgive them. Forgive them on what basis? They have broken my law. My justice has, has to be met. It would be very wrong for a judge to say that they are just and then they leave the, the perpetrator to go away. Imagine you are there, someone stole something from you, and then they just say, I'm such a just judge, I'm such a kind just judge that I will let this guy go. And you will say, wait a minute, that's not justice. This guy is happy, he's excited, but what about me? What about how I was wronged? In the same way, God's law, God's just law had to be fulfilled. We deserved judgment. We had to be punished. But for those who are in Christ, what does the Bible say? That he, when he hung on that cross, he took the just punishment for our sins. So that then God's law, the justice, God's law which was crying for justice would now be quenched upon those who believed. If you do not believe, if you do not repent, if you do not believe in Christ, God's law is still crying for justice. And justice will be met either in an eternal hell, if you remain in unbelief, or for those who repent and believe upon Christ, the sinless Lamb of God. Come to Him. To the believer, let us see this wonderful thing that God is building His kingdom. It may not be fancy when we look around and we see the state of the church, when we look around and we look at ourselves and we see the issues in the church and we see the issues amongst ourselves and we even look at our own lives. But we need to stop looking at ourselves and we need to look at our King, the Lord Jesus, by whom God is building his kingdom. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we who are once your enemies, we who deserved to be destroyed, to be crushed, that you warn us. You have saved us. You have made us part of your kingdom. Not by crushing us, but by crushing your own son. That it pleased you to crush him. So that we may be saved. That you are building your kingdom, not by shedding our blood, but that you are now subduing the nations as the gospel of Christ, whose blood was shed, kingdoms are won. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this. And we thank you, Lord, that you have blessed us immensely. You have given us the things of this world, the silver and the gold. And, oh, Lord, we pray that we may not withhold one might from you, but that we may give it out for the building out of your kingdom. Forgive us for times we have looked at the blessings you have given us to just be for our own little use and for our own little enjoyment. Help us, O oh Lord, to love one another, to especially love those who are of the household of faith and to share with them. And O oh Lord, we thank you for 
our righteous King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns over us. That we have a King who not only reigns right now, but who will come and establish his kingdom on earth where righteousness and peace will reign forever. Oh Lord, we pray, may you hasten that day when our King comes. May you come quickly, oh our King, Lord Jesus, so that we may see this day when the great Son of David will reign over the earth. And finally, ultimately, there will be righteousness. Please grant us this and we pray that you would help that our thoughts may be lifted up by this wonderful reality. So we thank you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.